You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Good afternoon. I hope everyone had a good lunch. Um, For anyone who's feeling a little bit tired at the tail end of a two-day conference, um, don't worry, we've been saving the best for last. Um, So it seems like every day now you hear or read about some innovative solution that uh, governments are using to improve public administration. And public financial management is no different. In fact, just two years ago we had a book launch here. The title of the book was revolutions in public finance. Um, I've been working in public finance for a while. I've never felt like I'm in the midst of a revolution, but (laughs) if the IMF says we are, then maybe we are. Um, But as we've been discussing over the last few days, uh, PFM serves multiple objectives, and there's lots of ways that technology can um, help to uh, achieve those objectives. Um, But what we want to do in this session is, is get a little bit more specific about the potential for new and existing uh, technologies to to bridge some of these problems at the nexus of PFM and service delivery. Um, and I hope we'll get into some uh, constructive discussion that will, about the realities of what needs to be done to realize that potential. Um, so to help stimulate the discussion, I'm delighted to be joined by a great panel with perspectives across different areas and different contexts. Um, uh, rather than introducing them all now, I will uh, provide intros as, as they get ready to speak. Um, so our first speaker is uh, Devesh Sharma from uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, Devesh has kindly stepped into the breach um, as we had a last minute uh, cancellation. Uh, Karun Farooq from the World Bank was unfortunately unable to be with us today. Now, uh, Karun was going to speak about the World Bank's new uh, GovTech initiative. Um, and so I think Devesh is a great um, alternate because when I first started reading about the World Bank's GovTech initiative, I kind of said, oh, that sounds a little bit like the stuff that Devesh talks about when I, when I meet him. Um, uh, in fact, Devesh might e- even be a little bit more ambitious. Um, so we're delighted to have him um, kind of kick us off um, by kind of framing what is the potential for these new and emerging technologies to improve PFM for service delivery. So take it away, Devesh. Thank you. Uh, I must start by saying that uh, I'm not a tech utopian, uh, although I'm going to advocate for technology and its usage uh, in the work that we do. Um, And caveat that further by saying that the work that we do, we mostly believe that tech is a force multiplier, not a solution in itself. That sounds really uh, common knowledge. Sometimes people get a little um, flown away in how they believe tech can actually solve things. Um, So... There's a lot one could say. Uh, I'm going to only talk about three things, um, although I'm going to cheat a little bit because there's multiple things nested in those three things. Uh, And let's see uh, if we can uh, do that in 10 minutes that I've been given. Um, The three things I'm going to talk about are, one, how can tech be used to solve basic plumbing challenges in PFM uh, in areas where PFM is actually a problem, it becomes a bottleneck. Um, and that comes from a philosophy where PFM should be like good health. If you are healthy, you actually don't notice how healthy you are. It's only when you actually start losing blood that you feel like, oh, I don't have the money or the funds, uh, or your body starts breaking down. So good PFM should be like good health, uh, very smooth, under the radar. 
The second thing I want to talk about is uh, how can actually PFM be an enabler of even better service delivery than we see today. Uh, and then some propositional thoughts uh, in the third part on uh, this conversation that we've been having around centralization versus decentralization, uh, autonomy versus control, and what kind of tech architecture can lend itself to actually uh, a new paradigm that addresses both these problems. Um, so in terms of, uh, I'm not gonna talk about FMIS right now, but if it comes up, we can address that. Um, in terms of plumbing challenges, right, there's a few that are very simple to talk about. There's a panel yesterday on it. Uh, flow of funds, funds don't reach, facilities where they need to reach, uh, payments are highly delayed, um, and then the reporting of uh, expenditure that's undertaken is either very poor, very uh, late, or not credible at all. And we believe that comes from a paradigm where 100 years ago, the only thing that was possible was to give agencies money in advance uh, for them to spend that money, and then you wait for the reports to come back. And when the reports don't come back, you basically just do not release the further tranches. Uh, and we are still stuck in that way of working where we release money in advance, don't know what's happening with it, and then wait for reports to come. Uh, and there's very, very basic technological solutions to be able to change that. You do not need machine learning, you not, do not need artificial intelligence, you do not need blockchains, which all, of, all the world talks about. Uh, it's very basic tech that you need um, to connect uh, just-in-time funding systems, uh, and Treasury Single Account is actually given out as one of the methods to do that. There's more ways that tech can help in being able to transfer money in real time where it needs to go uh, to the vendors, beneficiaries, contractors, staff for salaries without it having to be parked in one place or the other, whether it's in bank accounts or in treasuries, and have that reporting be available to you in real time by connecting your workflows uh, with your fund management or treasury management systems. Uh, what that actually allows you to do is uh, have even more accountability than giving funds in advance allows you to do. Uh, because it gives you the kind of observability uh, in the minutiae of what's happening on the ground uh, that you don't get with ex post facto reporting. Um, in fact, there's an example in uh, India where just by revealing information on uh, what was the delay in payments to senior officers uh, in one particular program, they were able to bring down delays between 13 to 30%. Just by making the information available, changing nothing else. Uh, there's another example in India where uh, by doing this just-in-time model, the government expenditure actually reduced for a particular program by 24% uh, with absolutely zero negative effect on the outcomes. Uh, what Ratan was saying yesterday about how do you get the same results for lesser money, that's an example of that. So those are sort of the plumbing things that are possible with uh, these new technologies. The second thing I would say is uh, how do you sort of more hypercharge service delivery itself? with new technologies. And there I think the value that PFM systems actually offer is to be a forcing function for the kind of principles that are valuable in high fidelity implementation. So I'll 
basically just mentioned three of them. Uh, one is telemetry. Uh, the second is single source of truth. Um, and the third one is uh, observability. Telemetry is basically you being able to observe things uh, remotely. Uh, the way satellites actually observe us remotely and they are able to figure out what's happening when. Uh, to give you an example of uh, how telemetry actually works, uh, it's basically some sort of metadata on top of the data you're collecting. So let's take the example of uh, Aadhaar, which is, the, which is India's biometric ID system. Uh, about 1.2 billion IDs have been given across the country. Um, now the way some of the times that Aadhaar was able to catch uh, fake IDs was because there was IDs being issued at 3 a.m. in the morning. Um, and you're like, who is this person coming to the ID center at 3 a.m.? Um, <laughs> and now, so you know when the data was actually being collected, but you also know who was doing it, because every person uh, who's issuing that ID is actually logged into the system. So who's doing it when, where? The where is actually very important, because when you start to map information on geolocations, you begin to see patterns in some areas which you don't see otherwise. In fact, we were talking uh, to a professor at Ashoka University in India recently, and he was saying if there was only one thing, one common variable that I could have across all my data systems, it will be the GIS codes, just the latitude and longitude of the place where the activity is happening. Um, that itself would be extremely useful. Um, so that sort of telemetry is actually super useful in understanding what's going on where. Uh, the other idea is of single source of truth, where you make sure in your financial system that unless the information you're getting is coming from a credible source of what work has been done, you do not allow payments or transfers to happen. Uh, and then you do not allow, let's say, a performance management system and an audit system and an accounting system and a budget system to all sit on different places. Um, now, this doesn't mean that the systems actually have to be on one single platform. And we'll cover this in the, in the third part. Um, so let's move there. Um, so we spoke about centralization and decentralization uh, this afternoon. And I think uh, one of the assumptions with centralization is that when you're trying to centralize, what you want is a uniform system, not a unified system. Now, uniform systems are terrible. Uh, unified systems are actually much better. So not every kind of centralization has to be uniform. Uh, unified systems are actually ones which become stronger as they expand. Uniform systems break down as they expand. So an FMIS is a good example of a uni uniform system. You're trying to apply the same system in every single department, it's going to break down. But you have a unified system like a forest the bigger the forest becomes, the ecosystem actually expands, the stronger and more resilient it becomes. So, sorry, um, how do you actually make systems unified and not uniform? Uh, the way we think about that is to actually think about systems as a series of very, very small components like Lego blocks. Uh, also called APIs, also called microservices, whichever language you're comfortable with. Now, take the example of Uber. Is there anybody here who has not, never taken an Uber ride? 
<laughs> okay. Uh, is there anybody here who has not taken a lift ride? Lift. Okay, great. Um, sir, I'm going to come back to you in <laughs> two minutes. Um, but think about Uber for a second. What does it take? Three minutes? Great. Um, what does it take to actually uh, take an Uber ride? Cars, drivers, passengers, internet, smartphone, and the Uber app. Let's say there's probably a little more, but these are six components. And all these six components, interestingly, can live on their own and exist on their own. The driver does not exist only for Uber. Right? The smartphone only, does not just exist for Uber app. There are multiple apps you can use. Now, if you replace one of these components, so let's say the Uber app with the Lyft app, you get a completely different service. Or you remove the app completely, and you only have cars and drivers and a telephone and not the smartphone, you can still call the cab. So what we're talking about, I mean, for example, in Oxford, you actually don't get Ubers. Uh, in London, you do. But the same set of drivers and cars can actually facilitate both. Right? Now, if you think about that in the context of government and financial management, uh, how do you actually build this ecosystem? The way to do that is to actually forget about technology completely first. And think about government like you always do, in trays and out trays. Just think about every government program, every operation as a series of in trays and out trays. Something comes to a bureaucrat, they do something with that file, and they put in the out tray, it goes to somebody else's in tray. Right. So think about every single process in government as an in tray and out tray. Now, when you have these 2,000 services mapped out in terms of their nouns and verbs, so for example, the budget file up is approved by the budget director. Budget file is a noun, approved is a verb, budget director is a noun. Right? Once you play this out across this entire system, then you can think about which set of services do you need in which context and which Lego blocks need to be arranged with each other to be able to be effective. So for example, let's take up the example of uh, a budget approval. Now you could say that for big procurements like, uh, let's say, you're purchasing a piece of land, right? you need the, a microservice of the finance minister or the home minister approving it. So you add that Lego block onto that particular transaction when you are purchasing land. When you're buying stationery, you can just take that Lego block off and say even the district magistrate or the district education officer can purchase stationery with their approval. It's very easy to quickly replace the approval of the minister with the approval of the district officer. Um, so what we are arguing is think about IT systems as a series of smaller services which you can rearrange uh, and make them be more configurable um, and uh, forget about larger IT systems which have been driven by uh, big tech companies. Uh, by the way, microservices have to do with Microsoft. Uh, they are an independent tech thing. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, that's what my argument would be, to think about technology differently. So I'll stop there. Thank you, Suresh. I think we're uh, now getting a, a sense of the potential of technology to possibly improve service delivery, particularly around 
creating audit trails um, and also around the interoperability of, of government systems. Um, our, our next speaker is going to give us a sense of the practicalities of trying to uh, realize that potential. Um, uh, Bintazar Diop is a PhD candidate in economics at the University of Oxford. Um, and an area in which uh, she is specializing is how changes in the spatial allocation of human resources can improve the delivery of public services. Um, and with the team from the International Growth Center, she is working on a project with the Ghana Health Service uh, to use their administrative data from their um, uh, health management information system um, to improve the efficiency of how health workers and funds are allocated to health facilities across the country. Um, now, uh, when I first started talking to Binta about this, she said it's a work in progress. It's, you know, we're not seeing like big results yet. And I said, that's okay. I want to hear about the work in progress. What, like what challenges are you facing to try to, um, what problems are you working on and what challenges are you up against? Um, so take it away, Binta. Thank you. Um, so uh, this is an example of how um, data generated to monitor um, public finance um, can be used to kind of answer bigger questions about how to deliver services in, uh, in the ground. And this is work that I'm doing with uh, colleagues at the Ghana Health Service and Martin Williams, who's somewhere there. Um, and so um, it's very preliminary work, and so um, we don't have big results, but kind of uh, thinking about the um, healthcare network in Ghana, you can think of it as like a network of many different facilities and many different um, uh, facilities that go from really low-level, one-person facilities to state-of-the-art um, facilities that um, deliver surgeries. And so if you think about um, this very complicated network of facilities that kind of go across the country, um, as a policymaker, you can think about how, um, how to um, use resources in an efficient way so that um, you can improve the service delivery across these facilities. And so part of it is kind of thinking about how to um, make resources available to these facilities. And there is quite a, a question when you think about one facility. There are different ways that you can put resources into this facility. So one obvious way is to just increase the number of staff that are into these facilities, so increasing the number of nurses that are in each of these facilities. But another, another way is to um, just give them cash, so give them money and see how that fares. And both of those are basically one way of giving money, but it's kind of different in the way it actually is, um, the facility sees it. And so, um, so the question really is understanding how each of those different ways of giving resources to a facility can change um, how service is delivered and how uh, patients get uh, care and how does it change the quality and the quantity of that care. And so um, the, it, it becomes really like when you zoom into increasing the number of staff, the question is a bit more complicated than just knowing how does it change by having one more staff. So it's more, if you think about a small facility that receives one additional staff, it's slightly different from having slightly bigger facilities that has a, has more staff. And so going from one to two um, nurses or from two to three nurses or from three to four nurses is very different. And so um, thinking about the heterogeneity across these facilities and how actually changing the number of staff is different for each of these different facilities is also something that is really interesting. And so um, perhaps for some facilities it makes more sense to have more staff and for others more cash. And so depending on where they stand, it, it becomes a slightly different question. And so 
we really are trying to answer a question about how do uh, personnel and financial, financial input affect the service delivery at the facility level. And interestingly enough, we haven't found that much done on that. Um, very often in the healthcare system, there is um, kind of counting the number of tasks that each staff does. Um, so that's kind of how typically people measure how many staff you need in a facility. So you would have somebody with a timer counting the number of minutes to do a Band-Aid and then kind of like counting all of those up together and then creating some sort of chart that says the number of people that should be um, staffing a facility. But it's really interesting when you have um, available data to be thinking about how to measure it in a different way. Um, and so Ghana is surprisingly for some people, uh, but actually for a lot of people who know um, the system, a great case to study this question. And so um, surprisingly to us, no other country has done it. And so, um, so people who work in other developed countries can say that, well, probably many other countries have these data, but it's rarely centralized. So you would have very detailed data on one facility, but no data across many facilities that can then be used to answer this question. And so um, we, uh, we are using Ghana as a case study because of that. And it's really interesting to be able to work with our colleagues on the ground to be able to answer these questions. And so um, kind of using this administrative data, um, we are able to use first like human resource data and we're able to say, well, if you look at the very small facilities, they are um, different numbers of, you can have one, two, to about 10 um, um, staff in each of those facilities. And um, we can look at on like, what is the distribution of the number of staff in all of these facilities? And we see that most of it is less than five. Um, uh, people in in those facilities, and we can also kind of look at how those um, how how many of those um, different type of nurses or different type of midwives are in these facilities. And it's actually really interesting because it seems like um, community health nurse, which are the nurses that are uh, typically uh, trained to do um, outreach and uh, very basic care, are the ones that are. Um, mostly in these facilities. And it, it shouldn't be that surprising because they're trained to do um, um, rural-type healthcare delivery. Um, but having this data alone is interesting, but doesn't answer questions about like how can we substitute money for staff, for example. Um, but we have financial data, and you can see with the spikes that there is some sort of delay in how much money people are getting. And, and so, um, there is this um, interesting picture with the financial data. Um, and so we're also looking at the difference between internally generated funds and insurance reimbursement. Um, Ghana is one of the countries that is trying to roll out this um, um, insurance system. Um, we also have data on delivery of services. So this is only one of the outcomes that we can look at, but we have a lot of different data. And so, um, we see that um, there are also different spikes. It doesn't seem to match exactly with the fund spikes. So that's something that is interesting. But then the interesting part is that we can kind of merge these data across different systems and try to understand, like answer questions, like the one that we set out to answer. And so I'm gonna show you one graph um, about those, but essentially you can see now that we can look at how the number of staff, which is the horizontal line, uh, matched with the number of um, patients that are seen in all of these facilities. And it's actually really interesting because you would expect that we'd see a line. So 
if you have one more staff, you should have about the same number of people who are seen. But there seems to be something happening when you hit five um, staff there. It seems to be slowing down. But this is just numbers. Maybe the quality is getting better when you get there. Maybe there are some other things that are happening that could be um, not kind of translating into more people, but still. And so um, when we will be able to merge it with kind of the financial data, we can see what's happening. Like, how are people using the money? Uh, and is it getting better quality or what, it, what exactly is happening? And so the Ghana Health uh, Service is really interested about these questions because that kind of allows them to understand how they can improve their system while still using about the same amount of money and kind of directing it in, an, in a more efficient way. Um, so one of the challenges um, is the availability of data, and Ghana has done a great job at like, having these different data infrastructures. However, um, matching across these systems is uh, complicated, <laughs> to use a word that is somewhat uh, fine. Um, but I've spent many, many months just staring at the data and trying to figure out how to, how to merge these together. And so, um, one thing is you can have um, the same name for 10 different facilities. Um, and how do you decide which of those are the same, right? Um, so a lot of it is just sitting down, Googling names, seeing where those facilities are and how do they match with each other. There's also that different systems have different levels of aggregation. Um, so um, understanding how to match them back together is also aggregating one data. So if you think about, for example, one, facility, um, one system that has data at the facility level and another one having it at the, um, at the regional level, then you have to create some sort of measures at the regional level for, for one to be able to match it back to the other. Um, so that's interesting, but we've, we are, we've done most of the work on that end, and so part of it now is just making sure that the quality of the merge is fine. Um, but then if you, if you think that um, this is, like, it has taken us so much time to get there, but at, le at least we're at a point now where we can answer great questions about um, uh, health service delivery, and part of it was also just uh, being in a place where these systems are in place. And so um, with this type of data, we can improve the allocation of staff, and part of it is also having better workload for the staff who are working in these uh, facilities, but also having better care for patients. Um, if we're able to answer these questions um, in general, the system will be better. Um, so when building um, systems like um, HRMIS or IFMIS, then you can think about kind of creating them in a way that allows for matching across these facilities and these um, different systems that is easy. So part of it is thinking about um, how to um, generate IDs across different um, data sets that could make it easy for all of these data to be merged back together. Um, and then, um, so then it's kind of like thinking about at the beginning of creating a system, just making them mergeable across different systems. And then also, um, if that is not possible, then like using the Ghana uh, case as a benchmark for um, other countries could be something that could also be doable. Um, but it's, we need to think very much about how the case of Ghana can be actually 
uh, comparable to other places that have very different settings, very different contexts, and so that is also part of the work that we're hoping to do. Thank you. Thank you very much, Binta. Uh, I think that's been really helpful, um, both in terms of kind of highlighting the potential of technology and analytics to improve allocation decisions, but also highlighting some of the hurdles you have to get over just in terms of mundane, um, you know, uh, administrative procedures um, around making sure data is uniform um, in order to get there. Um, we're now going to uh, shift to the education sector in a slightly different context um, while remaining on the topic of using technology to uh, facilitate better decision making um, on public spending. Uh, Jess Gartner is the founder and CEO of Aluvu, if I pronounced that correctly? Aluvu. Uh, Aluvu. <laughs> <laughs> easy, uh, easy first. Which uh, provides software solutions and ancillary services to states and districts in the U.S. to support um, evidence-based <laughs> allocation decisions. So we're delighted to have you here today to discuss your experience of working with decision makers in the education sector. Thank you. Um, I like to start with our mission. Um, we are a for-profit company, but we are a very mission-driven one. Our mission is rooted in empowering education leaders to strategically and equitably allocate resources to meet the needs of students. And people ask me all the time, how did you get into this work? This is very, very niche work that you do, education finance technology. So I'll tell you a little bit about my background. I was a public school teacher. I started my career as an English language arts and social studies teacher for middle school in Baltimore City. And Baltimore City has some of the lowest proficiency rates in math and reading in the country, and particularly in, in the state of Maryland. And as a first-year teacher, I was given basically a shoebox my first day on the job that had a few pens in it and a box of staples and told, good luck. And uh, around October, we ran out of copy paper. And I said, well, when will more be coming in? And they said, no, we're, we're out. We've maxed out the budget for the year. I said, well, we're a month into the school year. How, how, have, we, how have we misbudgeted by that much of a margin of error? And so I started digging into these questions about, well, how do we make spending decisions in education? How do we make budgets? And how do we decide if what we're buying every year are the right combination of resources? And are we deploying time, money, people in an effective way? The U.S. spends $700 billion a year on K-12 public education, and we don't really have the international results to show for it. So it seems to me that we need to take a more critical eye to the inputs and resources going into the system and the equity and strategy behind those resources as much as the outcomes. We can talk about outcomes all day, but ultimately there's two sides to the equation. So I was on, my, I was on the plane ride over here. I was really anxious um, looking at the list of speakers that I was not going to have anything relevant for you all. Um, being really focused on education, I was worried maybe, you know, maybe the work that I do is, is really outside the scope, maybe it's not going to be relevant. And um, my concerns were alleviated when in the first 15 minutes today, I think every one of these was mentioned in the panel this morning. So this is what we call our SMART Pathways framework. And these are the five most common challenges 
that I hear from school district leaders on matters of finance. So site-level autonomy, we have an increasingly decentralized education system, not just from the national to the state to the district level, but even one level further to individual schools. Management and monitoring, obviously, when you decentralize those dollars, how do you then ensure that we're actually spending those dollars um, in a good way? Um, alignment of spending to goals. We talked somewhat this morning about performance-based budgeting, but we really think about this more on the input side in terms of alignment to strategy and goals and priorities. So how are you how are you thinking about your strategic plan as you're building a budget and do those do those two documents align? Resource equity, uh, we have an incredibly racially and socioeconomically diverse population in the US. Research is pretty universally coalescing around the idea that different students with different levels of need require different resources at school to achieve similar outcomes. And lastly, transparency. We have an increasingly data savvy and technology savvy public who wants to know how are these dollars being spent and what is the return on investment for, this, uh, for these dollars. So all of you, we have a couple of core focus areas related to strategic budgeting, effective financial management, and equitable and effective resource allocation. And one big theory of change that we have is that budgeting can't just be a season. It's not something that happens one day or week or month a year. It really has to be part of a continuous cycle and it has to involve input and feedback from a variety of stakeholders in the system. And so we present this cycle of budgeting that you could say starts with the allocation of resources to the budgeting unit, whether that's the state or the district or the school. Then you're creating a budget plan for how you will deploy staff and non-personnel non dollars. You're managing against that plan throughout the year, and you're evaluating what's working and for whom, and then you take that into account and adjust your allocations, and the cycle goes on forever. So when I started digging into this problem, I said, okay, somebody show me what does a school budget look like? I want to see, you know, is my, is my principal uniquely uniquely struggling with this or is this a problem everyone is having and somehow my curiosity worked its way up to the CFO's office and the budget director said okay I'll, I'll give you a printout I'll give you an export of what our accounting system looks like and about an hour later he got me something that looks like this and I said, this looks like it's the matrix. <laughs> what, what is any human being, least of all someone who was a second grade teacher in their last job, going to do with this? I mean, I consider myself a pretty intelligent person, but uh, what on earth would you do with this? I'm not a cryptocurrency hacker. So I said, all right, well, this is insane. We can't do anything useful with this. And by the way, this is hundreds of pages. There's like 100,000 unique accounts here, which is pretty common in public finance because there's so many vast reporting requirements that we have to track things like this. I said, okay, I, I don't think I can fix um, racism or poverty as it relates to educational outcomes, but I can definitely make this look better. That is a solvable problem. 
So today we, we take something that looks like that and we make it look like this. Um, we take those, those crazy, crazy accounting system exports and we put them into a, a series of dashboards and tools that use things like colors and plain old English words um, to help people sort and filter and analyze exactly what they're looking for. Um, so in terms of managing dollars, we're really starting to empower budget managers to say, look, when you make a budget, this is something you'll actually be able to monitor throughout the year. Because right now, budgeting is like this totally siloed process. And at the end of it, it goes into a black pit and no one ever sees it again. So how do you hold people accountable to manage against something they can't see or don't understand? So if we give them a tool that says, hey, when this turns red, there's a problem, that's, that's a very manageable ask of a budget manager. And uh, while, of course, we've heard so many times today, there's not enough money, there's not enough money, that is often true, but it is also true that a lot of money goes unspent because we can't find it in that black hole of an accounting system. So we make it really easy to say, show me unspent dollars. Where are they hiding in the bowels of my accounting system? Um, you can also catch errors really quickly. I can't tell you how many times we see duplicate expenses or, um, to your point, you know, spelling errors, right? Somebody's name position gets entered in three times with three different spellings. Well, that's going to that's gonna create a problem for you. On the budgeting side, we are bringing real-time collaboration to this process. One thing that's really tricky about budgeting across... Um, a, a decentralized department is that you have more hands in the pot and that makes it complicated. If you're trying to do that on static spreadsheets, you're going to create a lot of errors. Um, and the most common place we see that error is between finance and HR data, which are often done separately. Well, what makes up about 85% of your budget? People. So if you screw up the people budgeting, you're going to screw up the money budgeting as well. Um, so we're really trying to move districts into this area of priority-based budgeting. So not so much measuring to performance, but saying, tell me what your goals are and what are the strategies that you're employing. So if you're telling me you want to increase K-3 literacy rates, what are you doing to promote K-3 literacy? And does your budget set you up for success on that plan? Because if you're telling me you want to improve K-3 literacy rates, but your budget is 20 field trips, how are those related? And then we can have a conversation about what's working. And as we evaluate these things, we can now combine these data sets to say, where are we seeing connections between where we're spending money and the outcomes that we're seeing, or where we're spending money and the needs of students? And there's often a huge misalignment when we first start off. Um, so you can have a great budget, but if you don't follow it, it, it doesn't help you much. We often see a lot of overages, a lot of a lot of uh, underspending. So uh, to tie this into our, our earlier panel, the next phase for us is to take those budgets and help implement with tighter procurement mechanisms. Um, and to that end, we are actually going to be partnering this year with Amazon Business 
to connect their marketplace and the guided buying mechanisms with Amazon directly with the budgeting tool. So you automate a lot of what makes procurement compliance really manual and expensive. Thank you, Jess. Um, I think uh, one of the interesting things for me um, there is around this issue of interoperability again and the, a solution that the private sector can offer to get more out of the, the accounting system that um, a government already has. Um, of course, governments will face the decision of whether to buy or build their own um, systems um, and, and that's a very important decision for governments. Um, and our next speaker um, has uh, first-hand experience of grappling with this type of uh, decision. Um, Jacqueline Musabende is uh, an assistant professor at Mount Royal University in Calgary, where her teaching and research focuses on a range of topics, including public financial management and information technology. She's also consulted for the IMF, World Bank, and African Development Bank on systems implementations across a number of countries. But before all that, she was part of the Ministry of Finance in Rwanda um, that decided to build their own financial management solutions. Um, so we're delighted to have uh, Jacqueline with us today to discuss the motivations behind that decision, um, the benefits of that do-it-yourself approach, um, and what advice she would give to governments facing similar decisions. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you very much for inviting me here. So I'm going back to Canada with a joke. I saw today what you guys you call snow. <laughs> so it's funny. <laughs> so people are going to laugh. So um, before I kind of talk, I think I'm going to change something here. I wanted to drop to retire this one, because whatever I'm going to say doesn't go well with university. Um, I have uh, my background is in IT, so when I finished my studies, I started working in Ministry of Finance. So I was very happy. I was in charge of um, information system, the budgeting, and then accounting. I was very happy with my job. I was a supporting Minister of Finance. And um, at the moment, it was really tough for the country coming from a genocide. And we started to have so many people, experts, coming to tell us about MTF, I don't know, budget, and it was really incredible. So people in cool suits and every day. So they would talk like five, three hours. I was always in a meeting. And after that, I would go in my office just to tap on my stuff and things are done. And I was always like, why policymakers don't stop talking? Just to sit down and do the job. <laughs> I wanted someone. <laughs> then, because I don't like kind of not to understand it, because I go the first week, a second week, always the same thing. So I was like, maybe I'm the one who is having a problem. I went for a PhD. And I said, I'm going to do something where they talk. I wanted to understand these talking things. I went for global businesses international business is just talking. <laughs> so I kind of went there, so mm, I'm still talking. So now, today, from yesterday, <laughs> my question, I, I'm like, it doesn't get better. Right? So we are still talking. And you guys are like, oh, we have issues here, and then this and the other thing. So this is what I've done. When we, we started and they showed me, I was like, oh, the PFM, 
we have a problem for service delivery. I have an answer. We have a bridge. We need a bridge. That's it. And this is technology. And we are done. Let's go home. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> the reason why I tell this one is because the professors were supposed to talk. So I can <laughs> tell you guys that I talk when I'm professors. I'm no longer. So why I'm saying this is because I believe that you guys, I'm not going even to talk about what I've done, how the system is resolving the problems. So you take all your issues, you bring it to the guy behind your office in IT, they will give you a solution. I'm quite sure of that. Now, what we needed to do is to sit down and do the job. And the reason why I start with this, I'm looking for Simon yesterday. He was like, oh, are you sure anyone that really does work? I think I'm sure that it does work. <laughs> the reason is because they probably sit down and do the job and things are working. And what is important, because they're asking me a question, why Rwanda or whatever, so it's becoming a, a talking point. The first benefit I see from Rwanda is being able to go from where Normally when you talk about African countries, you are sure 100% that there is a mess somewhere. No one is talking about, but for now, for the first time, we have a country where people are no longer sure. Are you sure it's working? So at least when, when you start to ask these questions, because there's something happening. You are no longer sure that nothing is going on also. You don't even ask a question. You started to doubt. And you started to, am I seeing a double? That's very good. It means something is happening. So now let's go to what, how do you make these things happen and the decisions we needed to make. Because all countries, they wanted to know. Most of the time in this, uh, we need a system. As I told you, this is a bridge. This is our solution. So we needed to get this solution somewhere. So how do we get it there? So we needed to make a decision. Are we going to build our own system, or are we going to buy a system? This is discussions which is, that's if all around things like classic things we all know, like, oh, you know, it's expensive, so we're talking about the cost, or infrastructure in different countries, maybe they don't have infrastructure, so we understand it. We're going to talk about capacity, so people are not able to do that. That's very good. So until you want to, to understand and go down to understand those issues. So I'm going to give you an example in terms of infrastructure. So all countries so far where I've been, where the main, say, issue they have is those countries, they don't have infrastructure. You will see that they have fiber, optics, cable, all of them. Chad, don't know, Benin, all of them. So what is this kind of, what do you mean by don't have infrastructure? You can have infrastructure. If we were able to make a decision to have those fiber optics cable around your country. So then you will go on and ask them, okay, so by the way, now we understand probably the problem is not infrastructure. Let's look around, what is the problem? Where can you show me where you have you guys those cables. 
Oh, well, they will tell you, do you know what? So try to figure out to find a beautiful woman with nice necklace. Those are fiber optic cables. <laughs> because there are smart people who saw that the government is screwing around with, with things that I, I wanted to feed my family so I can turn those fiber optics into jewelry. That's what now they are doing with those things. So the problem they have is not that they can't have infrastructure. There's something else. Let's figure out strong. Why we can have information system that's working in a country, we forget about infrastructure. Then, you will go to, you know, offices because they say, they, oh, we have a problem with, I don't know, resources and we don't have equipment. Then you find someone sitting in the office and you ask them, say, how things are going, sir. Okay, fine. So you try to look at the, their computer. You can judge by the dust on the computer that this computer has been like six months probably. They never touched it. So we're sitting there. So okay, okay. So what do you do? Do you have your procedures, manuals? That, oh, no, no, no. We don't have a budget. Seriously? You can't tell me what you do or just write down what you do because you don't have a budget? So we start again to think like maybe the problem is not budget and the resources. There's something else going on in this office. So you go to another country, you see that in each office they have a TV. You have even a CNN. So people are sitting there, they're doing nothing but the CNN and the TV, everything there. Each office. <laughs> so you are like, wait a second, you guys watch that. They told me something incredible. Somebody told me, oh, no, 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 you don't touch this one. This is cultural sensitive. <laughs> and you have to pay the cable for everybody. Which means people are able to find the cultural sensitivity in something, and this thing will be done. So why you don't do that with IT, with the system? Let's find all of us, our cultural sensitivity, sensitive thing, where we invest money. So I wanted just to answer to Simon. Rwanda maybe figure it out. That's our cultural sensitivity. We're going to put money in things. Our culture is becoming, let's get the things done. So why would you doubt about that? Because everywhere else, people figure out that akin, indeed, make a decision based on what I want to do, and it will be done. So why I wanted just to talk about those things is because I don't know. Now we want you guys, even you wanted to change the entire PFM or by the way, maybe because we don't get here. It's because we don't know. Come on, get your things together so IT can support us and bring it somewhere. Because most of the time you see people who are in IT, the problem they have it's not technology, it's not going to support us or to help or what is coming. By the way, you guys, if we look what is going on now, all of you, you're going to lose your jobs, you're going to go on welfare, delivery service, and the, from wherever we saw. It's not even a good idea. Okay? So we understand if you push back. But that's where we are going. If we cannot use, for example, analytics, they're going to help us. Many, many issues we, we talked about here, it's about analytics. And you don't even know to hire other people for monitoring or analysis because you just analytics are gonna show you. Even if you don't want to read and read, they're gonna give you red is bad, green is good. So there's nothing else you're gonna do. So there's 
technology is advanced. If we are really far away, we don't know what to do because now you're going to tell me, oh, but you know, you will never be able to replace, you know, human. Sure, I will. We will very soon. Robots are coming. They will do the job. <laughs> so now we, we need just to figure out, and that's why I think, let's just let's do the job. Let's try to fix things, because we know where is the problem, why we're not fixing. And if we think that technology is going to support us, let's make a decision. Now, to answer this question on governments, or are we going to buy, or are we going to just build it ourselves? So, those are discussions that can take like six months. You go in a country, they are still debating. Next year, we'll come back, oh, we still have to decide. No, do whatever you want, buy. Let's just buy. Or we're going to build, yes. But you have to kind of own your decision because there are challenges and the risks. But it's not because there are challenges and the risks coming that you are not to just sit down and they say, oh, I'm not doing, I'm not going to touch this one because there are risks, because there are challenges. So we needed to be able to accept that. If you make a decision to buy system, there are challenges and risks you're going to manage. If you decide that, you are going to build a system yourself depending on decision. You're going to add also political decisions behind. Then the, the main thing is here to do something. When you just sit there and accept that and say, okay, so there are issues we are still resolving these issues. That's kind of probably what is, again, I'm going back to Rwanda. That's the difference between Rwanda and the other countries, and we can see the results, what is happening. It's because they are able to make a decision. And they say that, so we stop discussing and making things. That someone is going to take a decision, and they are going to own their decisions. So that's my... So it's, <laughs> it's, it's not so much about the, the issue of whether you buy or build your own, it's about deciding what to do and getting on with doing the actual work itself. Yes. Okay. Thank you very much, Jacqueline. Um, okay, I'm going to open it up for uh, questions uh, now. Um, we can get a few hands. We have one there. Thank you very much. My, my question is... Uh, in I'm just going to ask you to uh, give your name and organization as well. Okay, my name is Louis, and uh, I'm from Nigeria, from Nisa in Nigeria. Um, my question is in, in, in relation to the interesting work that is going on in Ghana. Uh, the addition of one, trying to track the influence of the addition of one more unit of input or one more dollar on service, pro, uh, service provision. I think you need to worry about the attribution problem, uh, which is the Herbert Ross of impact analysis. Because usually there are so many things feeding in at the same time. So you have to think of how you can control or filter out the influence of other factors. And some of these factors are not necessarily amenable to, to quantification. They might actually be normative factors that has to do with, with values. And uh, I mean, it might just be that a, a new manager comes on stream and uh, he insists that people stop talking or people stop watching television and do more of, uh, of doing the 
of the job. So that is one, one challenge that you, you have to, to, grow, to grapple with as you go along with this. It could actually be a change in policy or policy framework simultaneously with the addition with the addition of one more unit of the input. And uh, so there's this overriding problem of trying to attribute whatever happens to quality or quantity to just uh, one factor. So several factors that are exogenous and uh, you cannot exclusively trace them to the influence of, of that particular shock, that positive shock, even in, I mean, whether it's positive, on, on uh, service provision, on service delivery. Uh, thank you. Okay. Um, there is a hand at the back from Derek. Uh, thank you. I want to limit myself to the... I am Derek from Uganda, and I'm from an implementing ministry the education sector. So I think I related best with the presentation from Jess. And I think if all countries would embrace uh, what she was uh, presenting, then the outcomes would turn out to be much better. I always emphasize that I'm from Uganda, where we have one of the lowest learning, literacy, and proficiency outcomes. And I believe with the introduction of technology, we would achieve better. However, I will limit myself to the systems and uh, try to avoid the data. Technology is good, but the challenge is the, is the way it is introduced. You'll find that in Uganda we have about six systems, all robust and very expensive. I'll start with the, we have the integrated financial management system dealing with payment. You'll have the integrated payroll payment system to deal with the human resource. You'll have the education management information system dealing with counting of students. You will have, uh, we are introducing something called the teacher management information system. You have the issue of uh, duplication. It is a huge animal in the room. Some of these systems can do the same thing collect the same data and can be operated by one person. That's when you can have an output. But the challenge we have in most of our countries is projectization of systems. Each system is introduced as a project, and in the end, it can't be used to make decisions. That's why I want to also relate with Binta's presentation. She needs to make a decision. She needs to analyze. But here she is faced with multiple data sources with no leading nowhere. So we need to discuss the issue of duplication and also interoperability of these systems. How do you make one system seamlessly uh, communicate with another? Without that, you'll have expensive technology, which will take you nowhere, and it will, you'll end up having what they call sunk costs. So I think it's a debate we should have. The last uh, contribution is... Uh, on Jesse's uh, presentation, the issue of static data versus real-time data is very good. But the issue is, is it budget neutral? It is not. We need to discuss the cost of real-time data. It is very expensive to have real-time data. But otherwise, if we had it, it would be the best. So 
I would like you to comment on what is the most efficient way to have real-time data for simple solutions, especially for budgeting, like for education and social, social, social service sectors, because I believe data is the real problem in terms of planning for these sectors. Thank you. Okay, we'll take one final question from Neil, and I'll, I'll pick you up in the next round of questions, Dan. Thanks. So people are often surprised when I say that one of the few countries in Africa that doesn't have an IFMA system is South Africa. Um, and despite that, um, the country scores second to New Zealand on the Open Budget Index, um, produces all the required documents um, to, um, for that Open Budget Index. And in one of those documents, there's 10-year expenditure data um, that is produced on Excel, um, and uh, the budget process uses Excel um, for to look at the at the baseline um, um, information for the budget and also the additions that are made. and And we pretty much prepare the adjustments budget um, using 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 Excel. And there's a couple of reasons why the country doesn't have. Um, have why well, doesn't have an, an IFMA system, but it gets along, I think, pretty well in terms of producing the the required um, budget information. Salaries are paid pretty much on time. Um, service providers are, are paid pretty much on time um, through transversal systems that we've not been able to been able to integrate. And when I when I also speak to to colleagues across the continent. Um, a, a common word that is sometimes used is that IFMAS is a bit of a disaster. Um, a, a bit of a disaster. Um, and, and, and the reasons that are given are that, um, that there's a lot of over-specification. Um, so you're given 10 modules, but you're only really using three of those, three of those modules. And a great deal of, 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 of um, funds have been spent and when the slightest thing is not working, you move to the next version. So the country we are here that IFMAS is a disaster is now on version 10 point something. So clearly the problems have not been solved by the introduction of the various, of the various versions. Um, so I think the experience with technology um, in public finance management has been somewhat of a disaster. Um, and, and I think it would be, it would be good if, if the panel, um, and, and, and I, I, I didn't hear in the panel how um, a, a different approach was being thought of to approach um, the, the, suppose the introduction of technology within, within PFM. I mean, the big one that comes to mind when thinking about IFMAS is the Malawi Cashgate scandal. Um, where the system was used to facilitate the corruption in many ways. Um, so it, I suppose, says to me that um, in the design of the IFMA system in Malawi, that it just missed several 
checks and balances in the way that the in the way that the system was 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 designed. Um, I know Rwanda has a, a a good experience with with IFMAS, and maybe there's a lot to say there about them designing their own system um, and 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 having the expertise within the Ministry of Finance um, to run the system and to be able to call on um, officials within the Ministry of Finance to fix problems that they were having. Um, because one of, the, one of the criticisms that we also hear of, of the IFMAS is that that backup service is not always um, the most pleasant um, and, and, and speedy enough. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, not a, I, I'm clearly not a big fan. Uh, thanks. thanks, Neil. Um, okay, there's, there's a specific question for, for Binta from Louis. Um, uh, and then I think uh, Derek's question on, on the real-time data costs of, uh, um, uh, I'll ask Jess to come in on. Um, I think Derek's question on interoperability, everyone might be able to um, offer an opinion. Um, and I think um, both Jacqueline and, and Devesh might have things to say about IFMIS as well. Um, so I'll, I'll let you go first, Binta, and we'll, we'll move along down the line and pick up anything as well that I missed. Yeah, thank you, Liu, for your question. Um, um, so if I get it right, you're saying that there are other factors that might enter when uh, enter the equation when we think about inputs um, and how they impact delivery of services. I think it's really interesting, and that's why using these data sets that are um, built separately are really interesting, because all of these data sets have many, many, many um, different variables that we can use. So um, some of them have thousands of uh, variables that can help us. And the other thing that is also interesting is that for all of these facilities, we have a, what we call a panel data sets, which means that we have Every month we have some data point and we also have it for 10,000 facilities and that allows us to be able to kind of say, well, for the facility level data, we can say that being in this facility, regardless of what's happening there, um, there might be something like the building might uh, be better built or some other factors that can um, influence how well uh, having additional inputs there can change um, outcomes, or you can think that, for example, one specific person in the HR data set can have an impact that other people do not have. And so that is also something that we're looking at because we're also able to observe, um, because HR, um, HR systems are tracking everybody, we're able to observe if a person is particularly good or if a person is not that great. We can kind of see what the individual effect of each of these people are. and. Um, that's something that can be very helpful in being able to kind of isolate some of the things that might make one facility better than another or one person better than another. But of course, there are um, other um, there are other things that we might not be able to capture with that, and that's where having colleagues on the ground who are at the Ghana Health Service is really important and really helpful because they have all the ground knowledge and are able to actually point to some of the things that can be very important and that we might not, as um, people who are based in Oxford, not necessarily be able to see. And so um, I think kind of like thinking about how great the data in terms of like frequency and how uh, the breadth of the data is uh, we can use that and also the, the expertise of the people we're working with to kind of try to address that. I'm not sure to what extent um, that'd be um, something um, that would be satisfactory to um, you, but that's definitely something that we're thinking about and that's the most challenging part of the work besides collecting and kind of plugging these systems together. 
I can speak to Derek's point about the real-time data piece. Um, one thing that's really challenging, and I think this also goes to Jacqueline's point about um, the cost of technological systems, is that the cost of technology is often a very concrete, absolute number, right? This system will cost X number of dollars. And on its surface, that's usually compared with, well, whatever we're doing now is free. And that's, of course, not true because there are so many hidden costs and there are so many opportunity costs in inefficient processes. So if you think about the hidden costs or the opportunity costs of staff time, sending static documents back and forth, manually updating, manually looking things up, making phone calls when you need an answer to something, not being able to do any self-service, the cost of a uh, human error of getting one number wrong, even if it's a you know 0.02% error could create a $10 million problem. Um, so I think it's, it's really important to think about holistically what is the total cost of some of these of some of these manual processes that we have and you know for example we've implemented in places where they tell us this this technology has taken every 3 hour meeting to a 15 minute meeting or this has taken a a, a reporting process that took 20 hours 30 seconds so not only are you saving that time, but what can you then do with that reallocated time, right? So what, what are you missing out on in terms of the opportunity costs of what people could be spending their time on, a sort of higher level things that are probably not even yet explored because everybody's running around trying to keep their spreadsheets up to date. Um, and I like to think of this actually from a, a Bloom's taxonomy standpoint because I'm a former teacher. So uh, Bloom's taxonomy, for those unfamiliar with it, is sort of this pyramid structure where the, the baseline is the, your very basic knowledge and skills. So things like vocabulary, basic information you have to memorize, and then you slowly work up to PhD level work where you're doing synthesis and highly evaluative type of questions. Most public finance right now is at the bottom rung, right? <laughs> We're spending so much time fact checking, getting basic data, answering basic questions, putting together basic spreadsheets with just the rote information. We never get to the evaluation piece. We never get to the higher order thinking. So, you know, when we talk about technology, I actually never think the goal of technology should be to replace humans. I think it should be to do the stuff that it's that computers are really good at doing quickly so that humans can do things that humans are uniquely good at. Because if we can reduce error and save time on all of the bottom stuff that's just basic information and reappropriate the human time to the higher order stuff, we could unlock so much potential 
we can unlock greater strategy, better decision making, deeper analysis, opportunity to re, uh, reallocate for equity. And to me, that is that is the potential for technology. It's actually, it's not a vertical slice where we're replacing humans. It's how do we take things off humans' plates so that we can get to the stuff that we're not even getting to right now. Uh, Jacqueline, yeah. do you want to respond to Neil yeah. in particular? Yeah. yeah, very, very good question indeed. Um, and uh, I like to, uh, this intervention to say that there is, there's a country, they don't have IFMIS, but they're still delivering, they're doing a good job. And that's really the thing. Because when we look at the technology and those decisions we want to make, it's not about going for something excellent or we've never seen. That's most of the time in France, that's what we do. When you complicate things and until no one understands it, then you're good. <laughs> so, <laughs> so in IT, Excel, this is excellent tool. It's never been really built. So I can tell to a government to use Excel for their if miss. So it, it does work because the, the reason why I can really advise the countries, there are some countries, for example, um, you ask them how many transactions you have, let's say a day, I don't know, 10. So, but they want the Oracle or SAP, so it doesn't make any sense. It's very expensive, complex, and no one will be able to use it. But you have Excel. Why don't you use Excel? It's very good. It will give you this report you are looking for. So, <coughs> there. You mentioned, for example, what happened in Mali. That's very interesting. There is something also happened in Kenya with their Malawi. Yes, in Kenya also with Oracle. They implemented this IFMIS Oracle. And it, the objective was to change the kind of things, but it didn't work this way. There are some scandals also behind. But it happened also in Canada. So they came up with a system, Phoenix, for uh, payroll. And what happened is like, 80,000 people now are not being paid because the system doesn't work. So this is in Canada. So it has happened all over the world. So now, there's something we needed to understand in terms of if miss when you make a decision. Uh, in the past, the systems, if miss used it to be like support tool. So when it's a support tool, of course it does support you with your corruption, whatever you have, it's supporting you. So, <laughs> and it will do a very good job. So, <laughs> until you are able to think this as being strategic tool indeed. Because it will help you in terms of change. And when we talk about the change, change in our behavior, you know, new practices, how we do things. So it will support you, it will bring a change and you are, we will always think IT, how it can help me in my decisions, in strategic decisions, rather than bringing all our issues and then, hey, IT, can you help us? Of course, it will help. So that's, those are discussions people need really to be able to accept. <laughs> to accept, for example, when you start to discuss, like discussions we have now, you wanted to change the PFM or whatever, but you will do your stuff until you're done. Once you're done, you come to see IT. 
hey, this is what we have. You didn't associate these guys in discussions in terms of making decisions. And then just you needed to have IT as being strategic, you know, component of your business, of institution or government. So it can kind of bring this change in terms of corruption and then how we are going to have those results. Thanks, Jackie. Devesh, um, do you want to also uh, say something about the real-time data costs that um, Derek uh, raised? Um. Yeah, I mean, I think what Jess said about the invisible cost of actually being inefficient, I completely agree with that, so I won't comment on that piece. But I want to <coughs> address what Neil said. Um, and so, Sorry? Uh, not really. <laughs> um, but I love Excel. Um, but it's not a plug for that. I think uh, when you say uh, FMISs have failed uh, and technologies or application of technology hasn't been useful in public financial management, uh, I personally believe it's not a technological problem. I think it's a problem of lazy thinking. Uh, and throwing everything that you have got, which is an integrated FMIS, onto a problem, hoping that uh, something would solve it. Um, but the challenge with that, by not being uh, perceptive or sharp enough about what problem you're trying to solve, uh, I think you basically never solve the problem. Right? So uh, the, what I said about in-trays and out-trays earlier, if we can really think very hard about which in-tray and out-tray has a problem, who, what process is not working well in what we are trying to solve, then we can think about tinkering with just that particular process and solve that with technology instead of trying to basically build these bigger references, which is why I was saying um, we need to think very, very, very hard about like what are these nouns and verbs where we think there are problems. Um, you know the problems of FMSs better than I do, uh, in terms of them being acontextual. Uh, and doesn't it, it doesn't mean at all that when a country develops its own FMS, it's being contextual. Central governments have, are very, pretty clueless about what's happening in districts uh, or what's happening in states. Uh, so just because it's country-owned doesn't actually make it contextual at all. Uh, the only thing that can make it contextual is people in the context. Uh, and which is why you need to give people these series of Lego blocks that they can design their own things, which are unified, and then being able to solve their contextual problems. Um, now the problem is that the world of PFM reforms has been driven by big donors, big tech companies, and big consulting firms. And they don't make money from these smaller in-trays and out-trays. Uh, it's not cost efficient, it doesn't, it's not good for business. Uh, but now that we have these technologies available, uh, where even a very small tech company based in Benin can actually build you that microservice. Let's use that. Um, the other problems are there are standalone systems. Uh, there's vendor lock-in, all those other pe things people have written about, so I won't speak to that. Okay. I'm just going to um, quickly go to um, uh, Michael Cornford, who's uh, uh, joined us from uh, Public Digital. Um, Michael, do you want to reflect uh, or tell us a little bit about what Public Digital uh, does uh, and also um, reflect on uh, some of what you've heard today? Sure, thanks. Um, 
Yeah, so Public Digital is a small uh, consultancy, so uh, avoid some of the, the, the problems you're talking about. Um, we work with uh, governments and organizations um, around the world to build excellent services using tools, processes, and kind of uh, approach of, of the internet era. Um, we're working with a number of, uh, so it was, it was set up by um, the founders of the UK's government digital service, it now has members um, who've led uh, technology transformations in Argentina, uh, Rwanda, um, uh, Canada and, and others. Um, we're, we're doing a bunch of work with um, uh, governments of, of developing uh, kind of nations and um, a lot of what you've uh, kind of talked about um, uh, kind of chimes because we're seeing the kind of the challenges are, are kind of in, in three key, ar key areas which um, are very similar to those we see in with, with um, the work we're doing with with uh, developed uh, governments as well um, so uh, the kind of delivery um, so this I guess is is going to the point that uh, kind of Jacqueline makes when you've got a you've made a decision but then um, how do you go about uh, uh, kind of doing it making it happen um, finance how how you get the kind of money to to um, get get actually building things in the right way um, and finally skills um, with with delivery um, we're finding that um, adopting the kind of agile user-centered iterative approach um, uh, that's kind of proven to work in other contexts also works in in this context. Um, so starting with a, a kind of discovery phase to identify the kind of nouns and verbs that, that Devesh was talking about, making sure that you're understanding the, the kind of constraints of the um, of the environment in which people are going to use your technology, because technology, as you've all said, is is just there to support people. It's not a, a kind of magic magic bullet. Um, yeah, starting with the, 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 the problem um, and making sure you have a good understanding of that before um, uh, identifying some hypotheses that will allow you to kind of um, uh, uh, identify um, the right the right direction and then and then kind of building from there. Um, finance, um, given that this is a, a proven way of working, one thing that we are kind of coming up against um, is that current models of funding um, uh, don't work to support this. Um, so there's a, a desire um, from funders to, to give a large chunk of money um, upfront um, and uh, kind of walk away expecting that in six months time they can come back and see an app and a press release. Um, and uh, that's that's um, not great. Uh, uh, it would be better to have smaller chunks of money um, which allows, uh, allows kind of teams working on this to, working in this way to uh, kind of try a thing and then report back and if it's going in the right direction then 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 get more money to kind of keep going but if it's not to kind of reflect with those donors on why it's not not going in the right way and um, giving those donors more control actually than than the kind of uh, the the alternative approach um, uh, yeah and, and finally um uh, the kind of uh, skills challenge. Um, so there's lots of, of good uh, developers, software engineers in uh, all over the world now. Um, but we're finding that um, uh, in order to, to kind of support this approach, there are um, uh, skills gaps in, in kind of product management and user research that the people who will help you understand uh, what are the kind of constraints that are, are unique to this, this particular circumstance and how uh, like what is it we should build? Like um, you don't want to build a, uh, an IFMIS system that has 10 modules which you only use three of. Um, you build something that, that works for this, this context and then, uh, and then uh, move forward. Um, and ideally, you know, build a, build a team, um, not an app or a, a tool that, that um, will 
go out, uh, you know, context changes, as, as Jess said, budgets change, policies change, and the world kind of changes. And software is not um, like a bridge, uh, which is going to uh, sit above a river, which is uh, probably going to stay roughly where it is. Uh, I mean, unfortunate time to use this metaphor. Um, but it's going to stay roughly where it is uh, and behave in the same way for a while. Um, things will change, so building a team that can uh, kind of maintain that over time. Um, whilst they get on and do other things to, to, to uh, kind of support the citizens of, of that government, um, that's something that kind of comes back to. But I guess for, for this audience, the, the thing that I'd really be interested in is um, uh, kind of to hear what, what extent there is to kind of change that, that finance problem, um, to, to get funders thinking in a way, funders and donors to, to, to think in a way that is not about giving this large chunk of money, um, but, but being more involved um, and, and giving smaller chunks to, to, try, to try things out like that. Question. We've actually had a very similar one from uh, Paddy Sianga Nudson um, online. Um, I, I just want to give Dan a chance to ask his question, um, and I'll give uh, each panelist um, a, a minute um, to, to wrap up. Thank you. Um, the, uh, Dan Honig, Johns Hopkins Sykes. Oh, I'm sorry. Was I? Sorry. Uh -huh. Go yeah. ahead. I'm good. Um, Dan Onig, Johns Hopkins Sykes. Uh, so I had two questions. So first, uh, Binta, um, I think this work seems super, super fascinating. Let me just say that. And I think really, really exciting. Uh, I can't wait to read the paper, um, or, you know, when it, when, you know, sometime down the line. Uh, I was curious uh, what you think will happen in managerial space once it comes out, right? So now you've got a paper about something like the relationship between staff numbers and performance. Uh, will that continue, do you think, to hold after you've started talking about it? Or is the system going to react in a way that makes this a great benchmarking, uh, you know, sort of um, exercise in each country one time until people start paying attention to it and strategic interests get involved in sort of managing the relationship between uh, staff numbers and performance for good or ill? Um, and uh, Devesh, uh, I, I, I found myself thinking about um, a Gates letter from 10 years ago, so I looked up a quote. Um, so in his 2013 annual letter, uh, I, there I should say, of course, Bill and Melinda Gates' annual letter, um, they say, you can achieve amazing progress if you set a clear goal and find a measure that will drive progress towards that goal. It seems to me, if I replace goal with process and uh, measure with technology, that is, you set a clear process and a technology that will drive alignment with that process or something like that. That is a lot, that seems to capture, to me at least, a lot of what you're saying about inboxes and outbox and outboxes. Uh, and I find myself wanting to hear a bit more from you about what you think the if is, what you think the scope conditions are, what processes, if any, in the world are not amenable to that sort of thing. So, you know, I would have said we could get the teacher to the classroom that way, but what the teacher does unlike what I hear Jess saying, right, is not amenable to that kind of technology. Uh, we can get the social worker to engage with the client. We can't say a lot about what happens in the counseling. You know, help us understand what you see as the scope conditions. Uh, at least I know I'd benefit from that. Thank you. Okay. Um, we have a question for Binta and then uh, one for Devesh, both from Dan. Um, and I'm going to ask Jess and Jacqueline to comment uh, briefly on the question about f uh, donor financing. Um, we're over time, so 
quick responses, and then I'm sorry to everybody else who might have a burning question. Um, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um, so there's a lot of interest at the Ghana Health Service for this work, and they're doing, they're driving most of um, the work. And so I'm confident that it's not going to be a one thing, and that it's going to be a that they will move this uh, work forward. And so um, kind of putting all these systems together is something that they're interested in, and I'm sure that uh, um, because they are kind of the driver of this work that it will keep on um, changing and moving to something that is different and uh, in a better equilibrium. Thank you. Uh, uh, Dan, actually, uh, when I've been thinking about these uh, in-trays and out-trays, I've always thought about your paper with Lant uh, on account and accounting. And a lot of this work actually is about the accounting data, which we believe is in some way also fundamental, uh, without which in many countries what we see is the account is actually just fake. Uh, even the accounting data is fake actually many times. Uh, so this provides some, somewhat of a layer on top of which you build the account. Um, now the kind of information that is, or the kind of processes which are amenable to these are the more mundane transaction incentive things, uh, release of money, approval of things, verification of data, uh, it does not actually even claim to be useful for will the learning outcomes go up uh, if the teacher is present in the classroom. I don't think we have got to that point yet. Uh, I would simply just say that if you think about performance, uh, borrowing from criminology uh, means motives and opportunity. Uh, sometimes information can actually increase incentives uh, to perform because your manager is watching. Sometimes information can give you the means to understand what's going on, but you might not have the skills for it. Uh, sometimes you might not have the inner motive to do anything, uh, or you might not have the money as the opportunity to actually deliver on your goals. Uh, so I think it's a more complex array, uh, and sometimes uh, these systems solve one but not the other, and so we'll have to kind of bring multiple things together to solve for them. Thank you. Um, Jess, I'll let you take the, the financing question uh, first. As someone we'll... who has spent years begging foundations for money and they were completely uninterested in funding my work, I have uh, thoughts on this. Um, there are so many misaligned incentives around funding this type of work. Um, on the true corporate side, the goal is basically make as much money as fast as possible. And so that generally results in starting from the outside with the end goal and, and working backwards, which means that by the time you get to the root, you've discovered some really rotten things. And then that is probably what a lot of you spend all your time trying to fix behind the scenes. And from the foundation side, you know, they come to me and say, well, we want to know if we give Alice a violin, will her reading scores go up? Well, maybe if we spent 10 years building interconnected data systems, we might have some chance of asking that question, but we can't start with that question. So I think both the foundation side and the public sector need to join forces to put pressure on the private sector to better align incentives to solving root problems. And these are often deeply unsexy problems, but if we get the root problems right, then we stand a much better chance of solving these higher order 
problems that require interconnected data sources and are much more interesting to spend our time on. Thank you, Jess. Um, Jacqueline, uh, around the financing as well, we had a, a, the question online about managing kind of donors' expectations and them possibly pushing um, particular technologies. You've been on both sides of it. You've worked with donors and you've uh, worked with government. Um, what would you like to say on this? Yeah, that's really very interesting question indeed. Uh, you will see that most of the time decisions made, you know, I said, governments have to make decisions, they never make decisions because there is someone behind pushing you. If Germany, JZ is paying, so probably they wanted to have SAP, I don't know. Eh? So they want to tell you, but you understand. So <laughs> those are, re are realities. So it's very difficult you know, to come up with an idea, let's say, oh, I would like it to build my own system because I want a capacity building in my country, whatever you, 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 they don't trust you because they've seen, by the way, we have always to remember there are two faces. They've seen maybe um, people, young people trying to develop systems to solve themselves, let's say. So if I put together my own system database, I have access and everything else. So I'm working for myself. So that's how things are also. Donors are not, they don't trust data from systems that have been developed locally by local people. So they've seen something. Now, we have again an example in Rwanda, probably they were able to convince, I don't know, I know that the government paid for themselves. So that's another venue. Government can try to pay for this. You can use other venues like South-South cooperation. If we worked in Rwanda, why other countries are going to pay billion and a billion on Oracle and the other stuff? Why you don't want it to, to run from Rwanda, which they've done? So there are so many other venues you can use. You don't need it to be to have someone on your, your shoulder and say, you're going to buy this. If you don't, you will never have a system. No. And again, you have Excel, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> in case you can make it. So yes, there are those realities you need it to comply somehow with donors, but uh, uh, at which extent now it's up to uh, the government, as we said, you need to make a decision and based on what are your incentives, what you see that is going to be come from this um, uh, cooperation or partnership with uh, donors. Thank you, Jacqueline. I've usefully run out of um, any time to uh, provide a summation. Uh, what I will do is uh, give uh, two pieces of information. There are feedback forms on your seats. Please fill them out. Please drop them in the box outside. And the second piece of information is this is a conversation that we kind of want to continue to have. It's, it's a topic where there's a lot of confusion. Uh, we want to encourage people to get in touch with us if they want us to help to convene groups to talk about more specific issues. Um, we would be happy to um, lend our support to doing that. Um, otherwise, it's just left to me to thank my wonderful panel. Um, and uh, everyone, um, enjoy the closing panel session that's coming up after this. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes.